I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. In a blurb written for the new book, Chip War, by my Fletcher colleague, Professor Christopher Miller, Larry Summers writes, semiconductors may be to the 21st century what oil was to the 20th. If so, the history of semiconductors will be the history of the 21st century. In the 20th century, oil affected the economic fortunes of countries, the outcomes of wars, and the everyday life of individuals. If we look around us today, we see that in fact, semiconductors are having the same pervasive effect, whether through the dominance of Taiwan in the manufacturing of microchips, the success of smart weapons in wars, or through our use of, no, dependence on smartphones, personal computers, and microchips in a wide array of products, everything from cars to watches to medical devices. Indeed, this summer, GM had almost 100,000 vehicles sitting on a storage lot waiting for parts due to the global chip shortage. More recently, top U.S. lawmakers were urging the Biden administration to put a Chinese semiconductor company, Yangtze Memory Technologies, on a blacklist for allegedly violating export controls by supplying Huawei. I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Miller back to Econofact Chats to discuss his newly published book, Chip War. Chris, thanks for joining me once again on Econofact Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. Chris, as I mentioned, you've been a guest on Econofact Chats before, and each time we've discussed Russia. You're a historian of international politics and economics, and you focus on Russia, and you've published books on this topic, including The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR, and also Putinomics, Power and Money in a Resurgent Russia. Chris, what made you research and then write a book on semiconductors? I got interested in the question of technological development in Russian history, and in particular, the question, why was it that the Soviet Union could make its own atomic weapons, which were pretty complicated to make? They could shoot the first person into space as well as the first satellite. So they had some technological capabilities, but they could never master computing power and indeed fell behind in economic terms and in military terms because of that. And so I started digging into the history of this failure and came to realize that making computer chips is one of the greatest engineering challenges of our time. And it was a story that I thought hadn't really been told outside of a, a very specialist literature. And the average person, myself included, when I started this research, didn't really realize how complicated or important this was. I got an advanced copy of the book, and I enjoyed it really very much. And I learned a lot about microchips and semiconductors, the history of their development, the interest in personalities involved in the advancement of this technology and its commercialization and the political, economic, and technological implications of this high-tech story. Also, why Russia fell behind. So, Chris, to begin with, 
For our listeners, can you describe what a semiconductor is? There's a couple words that are used interchangeably to refer roughly to the same thing. A chip, a semiconductor, or an integrated circuit all generally refer to a piece of usually silicon with lots and lots of transistors etched into it. And so today, a advanced chip of the type that you'll have in your iPhone, for example, could have a billion or more uh, transistors inside of it. And a transistor is an electrical circuit that turns on or off. And when it's on, uh, it creates a one. And when it's off, it creates a zero. And these ones and zeros undergird all of the digital computing we rely on. And we often think of computing as something that happens uh, in a computer or on the cloud or in software. But in fact, it's lots of little circuits flipping on and off that actually uh, make the ones and zeros of computing possible. So you said one of these chips could have a billion transistors on it. When it started off, there are many, many fewer. And this advance is called Moore's Law. Can you explain what Moore's Law is when it was first proposed and whether it's actually proven to be true? And finally, why is it so important? So Gordon Moore was one of the early figures in the semiconductor industry. He founded a company called Fairchild Semiconductor and later co-founded Intel. And he noticed in 1965 that the number of transistors per chip that produced the lowest cost per transistor was doubling annually. And what that meant is that it was becoming cost effective to produce uh, far more transistors on each chip every year. And as a result, each chip could have more and more computing power at a rate that grew exponentially. And Moore's law is not a law, it's actually a prediction. <laughs> and so it's, it's changed somewhat over time. Uh, Gordon Moore first articulated it in 1965 to have a doubling of computing power annually. In more recent years, the rate has been around uh, a doubling every two years. Uh, but the basic trend of exponential growth in computing power has persisted to this day, which is why the cost of computing or remembering a single piece of data has fallen by something around a billion fold since 1960. One of the important themes in your book is the difference between the development of semiconductors and their large-scale production. You write that fabricating and miniaturizing semiconductors is one of the greatest engineering challenges of our time, and you alluded to that earlier. Can you say a few words about that? Well, if you think about what it takes to put a billion or more tiny transistors on a silicon chip that's often, um, you know, just one square inch or so in in size, uh, you have to have very, very small transistors. And today the most advanced and therefore the smallest transistors are, are absolutely tiny, measuring a couple dozen nanometers or even smaller uh, in size. That's, you know, around the size of a coronavirus and not even smaller. And the fact is we manufacture these by the billions every single day. It's uh, we've manufactured more transistors than every other manufactured good in human history combined. Uh, and the scale is just uh, extraordinary. And making this actually possible has been uh, a very, very expensive uh, and time-consuming process. And today it requires a very complex supply chain from designers to people who write the software tools needed to, um, to lay out transistors as to where each transistor goes on the chip to machine tool makers, uh, to the actual process of fabricating them. And so there's a large number of companies that produce relevant intellectual property or tools or materials and several thousand steps required uh, to make 
each uh, each chip that we rely on today. So you describe how these chips are etched using light, and now they use extreme ultraviolet light, right? That's right. Yeah. So to to make a chip, you take a piece of silicon, you layer some chemicals on top of the piece of silicon, uh, and then you shine patterns of light uh, at the at the chemicals on top of the silicon and the light and the chemicals will react in certain ways that let you create holes, for example, etch holes in the silicon. And that's how you actually form transistors is by etching tiny uh, indents of sorts in the, in the silicon. And to do this with the precision needed has required not only using normal light, which is how the industry started, but today we use extreme ultraviolet light, light with a, a smaller wavelength than visible light. Uh, which is extraordinarily difficult and expensive uh, to produce. Yeah, I actually started laughing at one point in the book because you described how producing enough extreme ultraviolet light requires shooting a ball of tin that's 30 millionths of a meter wide, moving through a vacuum at 200 miles an hour, and it's struck twice with a laser that blasts it to half a million degrees, and this is done 50,000 times per second to produce enough extreme ultraviolet light to fabricate chips. Basically, this is magic, right? It's extraordinary that it works. And, and making the machines that can do this on a uh, regular basis, basically constantly in a chip fab, they're, they're producing UV light, took three or four decades. And each of these machines cost $150 million a piece. So these are the most expensive mass-produced machine tools in human history. And you can understand why, given the complexity involved. If you start taking apart the machines needed to produce EUV light, uh, they themselves have components that are, on their own, extraordinarily complex. The flattest mirrors, for example, humans have ever produced are in these machines. Some of the most powerful lasers uh, commercially used are in these machines. So it's really sort of a an engineering marvel uh, just this one step of the production process. And when you consider that the production process has 2,000 uh, steps, you can begin to get a sense of just all of the uh, engineering and physics and material science expertise that's required to uh, make the chips we use today. Well, you can get some idea, but it's still incredibly mind-boggling. <laughs> that's right. Um, in the introduction, I mentioned Yangtze Memory Technologies, which now U.S. lawmakers want to put on a blacklist. But the biggest chip manufacturer in the world is across the, um, the straits from that. It's the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which is better known as TSMC. I guess this illustrates the global nature of this industry, right? Well, I like to use the word international rather than global. Um, because although the supply chain is international and stretches between many different countries, uh, it's not a technology that is globally available in the sense that a small number of countries really control uh, access to the technology. But certainly to create an advanced chip, you need to access intellectual property, materials, and tools from a number of different countries. And if you, if you think, for example, of a chip in, your, in an iPhone, There'll be designers in the U.S. and the U.K. and Israel working to design that chip. It'll be sent to Taiwan, to TSMC for fabrication. But Taiwan will use, uh, this, this Taiwanese firm TSMC will use machine tools from 
uh, several different countries, the US, Japan, the Netherlands to actually produce the chip. It'll import specialized chemicals often from, the, from Japan as well. And then once the chip is done, it will be sent uh, often to Malaysia, for example, for packaging um, into a, a ceramic or a plastic package. So there is certainly a very complicated international supply chain um, that that is required to make a chip. But it's an international supply chain that gives uh, certain companies and certain countries a lot of um, outsized influence in terms of uh, their ability to shape what the chip making process looks like. Right. So point taken that global is really a misnomer here because there are, as you mentioned, very few countries that actually are deeply engaged in this. And one of them is Taiwan. The story of how Taiwan became a leading chip manufacturer offers some insights into the important role of government and how governments have played a role in the creation of this industry. Sometimes there are direct government subsidies and other times, as was the case with the United States, the support is a little bit less direct. In the case of the U.S., the support came through the Defense Department. That's right. And we've seen since the earliest days, the chip industry, governments being very interested in trying to support the development of the industry and also shape it in ways that um, suits their political and often their foreign policy aims. So in, in the U.S., the industry emerged out of defense funding. And it was the Defense Department's desire to miniaturize computing power and put it in the the nose of missile systems that really led to the industry's uh, first emergence. But when other countries looked at the chip industry in Taiwan, for example, or South Korea, uh, they saw a source of um, of jobs in assembly operations and then eventually a way to climb the technological ladder and climb the value chain. And so began funding uh, their own chip industries with, with that goal in mind. And, and today those two competing interests Governments focus on the international political ramifications and the strategic ramifications, as well as a focus on jobs and um, and technological uh, innovation shape how different governments uh, try to interact with the chip industry. And one of I think the challenges that companies have always faced is that because every government that has a chip industry in their country is involved in some capacity in subsidizing it, um, there's been a constant uh, challenge to delineate, well, what's the responsibility of market competition and where are governments involved? Because the reality has been that governments have always been involved to some capacity. Well, in the United States, the role of the Defense Department in fostering the semiconductor industry reflects the important role that smart weapons are now playing. You write about how the Gulf War was one of the first things that illustrated this. And I suppose the Western weapons and intelligence provided to Ukraine are more current examples. Yeah, that's right. And, and this is, again, something that's been central to the industry's uh, entire history. The first major procurement order for semiconductors was for the Apollo spacecraft's guidance computer. And the second major order was for the guidance computer on a intercontinental ballistic missile called the Minuteman II. And there's been a deep interrelationship between Defense Department technological demands and the ways the chip industry has developed since then. And if you look at the future of military power today, like we see it used on battlefields in Ukraine, the the military's needs to sense information, to communicate it, to interpret it, and then to um, guide munitions toward their target all depend uh, very intensely on semiconductors. And if you think forward to the next generation of military technologies that are involve systems that are more autonomous, 
or more advanced electronic warfare systems, this question of who's got access to the best semiconductors and who's best able to uh, to use them to improve the military systems is going to be crucial to the future of military power as well. well in terms of access, there were supply chain disruptions from COVID and they've illustrated how vital the semiconductor industry is for a wide range of products. For example, what I cited at the outset about GM having cars stalled on their lots because there's a shortage of chips. Also, the fact that Taiwan is a center of chip fabrication makes the tensions between that country and China really important, well beyond the sovereignty of a country, even though, of course, that too is very important. What does a recent COVID experience and also the limited set of countries where chips are produced say about the vulnerability of the world economy with respect to semiconductors? I think the extraordinary thing about the semiconductor shortage of the last two years has been that although there's been a shortage, it's been a shortage driven by a huge increase in demand rather than a decrease in supply. And in fact, the world produced more chips in 2022, in 2020 than it did in 2019, and it had double digit growth in the number of chips produced in 2021. And yet, nevertheless, there was still a shortage, um, which shows us A, just how substantial demand growth is as we rely on computing power and uh, ever more parts of our society and economy. But B, shows us how damaging it would be if we ever had a reduction in the supply of chips, uh, which is something we haven't had to deal with uh, for some time. And you're right, I think, to point to the fact that there's really substantial concentration of chip making in a number of geopolitical hotspots. Um, 44% of the world's memory chips are produced in the Korean Peninsula, and 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips are built on Taiwan. Uh, and that does leave not only the semiconductor industry, but every industry that relies on semiconductors, which is basically every industry, hugely dependent on peace in both of those hotspots, because any sort of disruption, not even an all-out war, just disruption to trade, would have dramatic effects on on the rest of the economy because our ability to acquire computer chips would be uh, called into question. Of course, as you're indicating, it's not only the United States that's vulnerable. You point out in your book that China spends more money importing chips than it does importing oil. That's right. And this has been a, a source of uh, concern for Chinese leaders over the past decade as they began to examine where they were vulnerable uh, to external pressure, uh, Chinese leaders have focused on the fact that they import uh, so many chips. And, and the chips that China imports are partly from the U.S., but also from Taiwan and South Korea. But most of the chips that China imports are subject to U.S. export restrictions because they're either designed with U.S.-based software or produced with U.S.-based machine tools. And as a result, China is very sensitive about the security implications of this for China. And the response has been a vast domestic subsidy program, um, probably adding up to the low hundreds of billions of dollars over the past decade to build a domestic chip industry that is less reliant on American technology. So like Yangtze memory technology, that's an example of it? That's right. They received a... a a pretty dramatic initial investment, both from the Chinese government's own fund, which is called the, the Big Fund or the National Integrated Circuit Investment Fund, but also from a number of uh, ostensibly private corporations that in reality were deeply tied to the Chinese government, like 
uh, Tsinghua Unigroup, which has been a major investor in uh, Chinese semiconductor corporations. And so part of the controversy over um, Yangtze memory is that it's very clearly been a beneficiary of Chinese government subsidies. And so even if you set aside the question of, is it violating sanctions law, um, is it in the interest of a market-based global economy to have a company whose origins is in pretty substantial subsidies begin to take uh, meaningful market share? So this raises a question of what are reasonable government policies to reduce that kind of vulnerability? Do we need to have onshoring of chip production? And does this make economic sense, given what you've talked about in terms of the huge investment required for chip fabricating plants? Well, if you look at the semiconductor supply chain, in a, a lot of parts of the supply chain, there's not that much vulnerability because there's some geographic dispersion as to where production is happening. But when it comes to fabrication of chips, there's extraordinary concentration and above all, in Taiwan. And so this is a question that's come to the fore over the past couple of years is, is this dangerous? And I think answering this question depends on the likelihood you think there is of some sort of military escalation or even war in the Taiwan Straits over the coming years. But if you think there's even a relatively small chance of that, given the magnitude of disruption this could have, the expected value is actually pretty large. And so given that context, the the U.S. Congress and, uh, and and now the Biden administration are trying to find ways to incentivize the fabrication of more chips in the United States by uh, by promoting their own um, sets of incentives for manufacturing in the U.S. Given the centrality of Taiwan and the dependence of China on semiconductors, would China be shooting itself in the foot if it invades Taiwan and disrupts the production? of semiconductors from there? Well, in, in pure economic terms, the answer is yes. The question is whether you think China's leaders will be guided by a desire to maximize GDP or maximize their population's living standards, or whether they'll be guided by something else. And I think the lesson of 2022 is that we shouldn't necessarily assume that autocratic leaders with opaque decision-making processes and conspiratorial-minded intelligence agencies always make decisions with GDP maximization in mind. And I, I do worry that the more we've learned about uh, China's leaders and Xi Jinping's personal preferences over the past couple of years, GDP maximization has fallen away relative to questions of national pride or geopolitical influence. And that's the type of um, sets of interests that uh, might lead a leader to be less focused on the economic costs of an attack and more interested in rolling the ice and seeing what they might be able to get. Well, that's ending the interview on a sort of very sober note. <laughs> but I do want to congratulate you, Chris, on the publication of Chip War. It's not only really informative and instructive, but it's also a real fun read, and I enjoyed it very much. So thanks for joining me once again on Account Effect Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.